and welcome back to the Countering Climate Scepticism podcast, the podcast where we discuss and counter the arguments put forth by climate change sceptics and deniers. If you aren't convinced by climate change, our podcast will help to explain why it really is happening and why it is a big deal. If you are already convinced, we aim to provide you with the facts and evidence to challenge any climate denial arguments you might stumble across. Uh, my name is John Rainier and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Prosser. Mark, can you believe it? We have now released 10 episodes. It's amazing, John. It's absolutely amazing. It's uh, surpassed all my expectations, yeah. and largely in part thanks to you. <laughs> so thanks for being such an amazing co-host. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mark. And uh, thank you for being such a, a fantastic scientist as well. And thanks for reaching out and getting us started on this. Uh, I think we can confidently say we are now the number one podcast about countering climate scepticism. <laughs> if not the only podcast about countering, countering climate scepticism. Probably because people can't get the words out. Uh, so <laughs> this week, this week we're going to be looking at our long-awaited episode on Jordan Peterson. Mm, Jordan Peterson, yes. <laughs> looking forward to this, yes. Well, t- tell us what what do you what do you know about Jordan Peterson, John? Well, let's uh, let's get straight stuck into to describing a little bit about him. He's quite a quite a controversial figure. Uh, For those people who don't know anything about him, he's a Canadian psychologist, an author and a media commentator. He's often described as conservative and being somebody who has a lot of support from uh, people on the right wing. He has become uh, a bit of a a popular figure around around some members of the far right as well. Uh, He began to receive a lot of widespread attention in the late 2010s uh, for his views on cultural and political issues. Uh, He's somebody with two degrees in political science uh, and psychology. He's been a researcher and teacher at Harvard University. Now, in his own words, he describes himself as a classic British liberal and a traditionalist. Uh, According to an article in The Guardian, he supports universal health care, redistribution of wealth towards the poor and the decriminalisation of drugs. However... On the other side of things, how he's often portrayed, how he often describes himself and what he often says suggests quite a very different view. Uh, He suggests that universities are largely responsible for a wave of political correctness that's appeared in North America and Europe. Uh, He contends that proper culture and Western civilization are being undermined by postmodernism and neo-Marxism. He critiques political correctness and particularly over issues such as postmodernism, postmodern feminism, white privilege, cultural appropriation and, very topical for what we look at on this podcast, environmentalism. One of the areas that he is uh, most popularly known of, uh, known as, or most famously known as, is his views on gender. Uh, he's argued that there's an ongoing crisis of masculinity and a backlash against masculinity. Uh, he argues that the masculine spirit is under assault. And he's argued that the left characterises the existing societal hierarchies as an oppressive patriarchy but that the people on the left don't want to admit that the current hierarchy might be predicated on competence. Quite a controversial view there, that people are at the top, that men are in positions of power because they're better. 
Uh, he's also said that men without partners are likely to become violent and that male violence is reduced in societies in which monogamy is a social norm, so that male violence is inherent. Uh, he's also attributed the rise of Donald Trump and far-right European politicians to what he says is a negative reaction to a push to feminise men and saying that if men are pushed too hard to feminise, they will become more and more interested in harsh fascist political ideology. In 2016, he stated he would not use the preferred gender pronouns of his students. Uh, he claimed that a bill in Canada uh, that was related to this, the C-16 bill, was a restriction on freedom of speech. And transgender activists have accused Peterson of helping to foster a climate for hate to thrive and of fundamentally mischaracterising the law. So, anything you want to add on Jordan Peterson there, Mark? I think you've done a pretty good job. Very, very thorough explanation of what the guy's about. Uh, I mean, I just, I don't know if you mentioned, he also wrote a, a book, 12 Rules for Life, mm. which is super best selling, like millions of copies sold uh, and has sort of uh, sterling advice in it, like uh, remember to tidy your room and stand up straight. Some of these pieces of advice I still probably need to incorporate in my life, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and also like he's he's very... Uh, I mean, if you go onto his Twitter account uh, nowadays, you'll find he's he's a prolific tweeter. He mm. tweets. I think there was one day I went on it and I and I saw there was something like 130 tweets in a day, wow, and that wow. is oh not atypical for him. Yeah, it's just and it's how, you know. How so do he's, you have time to do anything else? <laughs> I think this is a good question. <laughs> you get me to tweet 100 times, I wouldn't be doing anything else. Um, but yeah, but it, but again, he's he's very he's very involved in the culture war, you right. know, like all these. So he's very against the left and uh, left wing ideas, environmentalism. He sees while, while one of saying these. that he's not right wing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. I think that was more a thing of the past. I'm not sure so much now if he 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 tries to sort of pass himself off as a sort of a, a neutral figure. I think mm. he he maybe embraces it a little bit more nowadays. But 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 yeah. So it's 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 a lot of complaining on his Twitter account. Um, and I think he also had, he, uh, did you mention he was, uh, he kind of, uh, had a mental health crisis at one no, point? No, I've not mentioned that, no. Okay. Um, yeah, so he was, he, he, he got addicted to benzodiazepines as a result of a mental health problem. And then he ended up get, getting taken to, uh, Russia where he was put in a medically induced coma. Uh, and so he probably almost died mm. during that process. So. So he's he's been through the wars. Mm, yeah, definitely. And so you know he's kind of morphed across his career. So um, although he he started off you know as a psychologist and and I think for for a long period of time uh, we're still seeing uh, a lot of clients. I believe about twenty clients a week. Uh, I think until still very recently, um, he's kind of morphed into more of a, a kind of self help guru type with. Mm is fingers in lots of different pies. And that's where, where today's episode kind of comes in because uh, with, so this is based on an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast that he did, episode 1769. Uh, if you want to check out the whole version of it, it's the four hour, 15 minute one. Uh, but it's only the first 30 minutes that uh, are him discussing climate change. And that's really the focus of what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, because like this is somebody that has a, a very large platform 
somebody who has a, a lot of followers and therefore a, a very large voice and is able to influence a lot of people. Yet for what we're mm. going to be looking at today, uh, there's a lot of what he says that is not true. There's a lot that he says that is a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding of the true situation. Um, and there's a lot that just needs correcting and clarifying. So that's what we're, we're going to be looking at. So we're going to be going through several different clips. We'll play you some of the clips so you can hear what, what he says first of all, and then we're, we're going to discuss that. Uh, so... Uh, shall we start with our, our first one then, Mark? Let's do it. Have you got it lined up? Yeah, let's do it. So this first one that we're going to be looking at is him right at the start of the episode talking about uh, what climate is. There's no such thing as climate, right? Climate and everything are the same word. And I, that's what bothers me about the climate change types. It's like, this is something that bothers me about it technically. It's like, well, climate is about everything. So, okay. But your models aren't based on everything. Your models are based on Warming. a set number of variables. Yeah. So that means you've reduced the variables, which are everything, to that set. Okay, so that's our first one. Climate is everything. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, like even, even for myself, Mark, as a, as a non-scientist, uh, you know, I mm. do have some kind of semblance of an understanding that any kind of scientific experiment, any kind of investigation involves selecting specific variables and then mm -hmm. where possible inducing control variables. Uh, but in stuff even as, as, as relatively simple as the, the human body uh, when it comes to uh, kind of modeling things, you can't ever have a complete control situation. That doesn't mean that anything that we discover about the human body is bollocks. Um, so, like, there seems to be some real flaws in thinking here. Well, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, certainly that all of what you said is, is true. It's, yeah, climate is everything. It just, it just struck me as someone who's spent years studying what the climate is, that that's just, just a nonsense. Like, so... I mean, like, for a start, like, climate is the sort of the average over time and the average over space. And this makes it different from the weather. Uh, and later on, you will see that Jordan Peterson doesn't really understand the difference between weather and climate. But I think here he's making a different misunderstanding. So, so it took me a while, but after listening to this, like, multiple times, uh, I think he's, when he says climate is everything, what he's, what he's referring to, I think or my best guess at what he's referring to, because he's not very clear in what he's arguing. Like, climate is everything. It's just, it's, he's, he's accusing people of being vague when it's, when it's him who's being vague himself, yeah. you know. So, so but I, what I think he's, he's talking about is the way that certain climate activists will say, in order to sort out climate change, we need to change everything. So I think that's what he's pointing at and criticising. So, 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 and essentially by everything, it means sort of capitalism. So he's got this, so when he's sort of thinking about this, he's sort of uh, being critical of, you know, the sort of the down with capitalism sort of folk on the left, you know, in order to sort of deal with the climate crisis. So, so, so yeah, so you've got climate is everything. But then he goes on immediately then to talk about like 
climate models. And it's like, hang on a second. On the one hand, you've got climate activists like Extinction Rebellion who are throwing super, you know, like pictures in galleries. But then you've also got like sort of climate scientists who are involved in the sort of scientific enterprise to sort of understand how the climate works. You know, uh, like, you know, they're sort of real scientists. Mm. And and I guess there's there's no two categories that perfectly don't overlap. Yeah. But climate scientists are very, very different from climate activists. Yeah. But, the, the but climate in, change in his types, head, yeah. as he describes them, climate change types. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, like, so it must be just one big circle where, like, you know, you, t- you take a climate scientist from, like, like I don't know, Harvard or whatever. And, <laughs> like, they're exactly the same as an Extinction Rebellion sort of young student, age 20. It's just like, yeah, like, th- there's there's a bit of a difference between the, you know, the industry of climate science and then, you know, activism. Yeah. So, so, yeah, get, so, so I think, you know, if he understood that difference, a lot of what he's saying might make a bit more sense. But, and, and but he doesn't. As we're going to see quite quite a lot here when we talk about uh, Jordan Peterson in in this kind of area, like you know, it's very common. You know, when I'm teaching geography to year sevens, one of the things that they trip up on quite a bit is the difference between climate and weather and the definitions mm. between the two. And Jordan Peterson is a very intelligent man, but here he is demonstrating year seven levels of understanding of the difference between climate and weather. And I think this is uh, going to be a recurring theme from what we discussed today, but it's an example of somebody talking about things like they know what they're talking about when they're talking Mm. outside of their field of expertise, you know, very confidently sounding like they're an expert, but actually not being one. So our next clip then um, is about the idea that we, we have to change everything in order to fix this problem that's what people who talk about the climate apocalypse claim in some sense we have to change everything Mm. it's like everything eh okay what and the same with the word environment that word doesn't mean it it means so much that it actually doesn't mean anything like when you say everything in a sense that's meaningless right because well what are you pointing to well i'm pointing to everything well what's the difference between the environment and everything. There's no difference. What's the difference between climate and everything? Well, there's there's no difference. So this is a crisis of everything? It's like, no, it's not. Or if it is, well, if it really is, then we're done because we can't fix everything. Okay. Thoughts on that one, Mark? Oh, it is. Oh, it is. It's more of the same and, and it's sort of extremely muddled, you know, and, and now, now you know, like the, the word climate was under fire in the previous one. And now the, the poor word environment yeah. has become you know, sort of robbed of all meaning. But yeah, like I also I don't know, there, there isn't much to really add from my point of view here. But but the um, I just get the sense that so in, in, in what he sort of said at the end, you know, it says we we don't have a problem of everything or if we do, we're screwed because we can't change everything you sort of get a sense that he just he finds the idea that there could be a problem so massive uh incredulous he's incredulous Mm. about it he can't believe that you know we would have such a big problem if we had you know because you're claiming we have such a big problem that must demonstrate that there isn't a problem it's a bit bit funny logic but uh, but yeah he just and and this is something that i I do notice with jordan peterson because you know he, he very much has a very clear understanding of the scientific method um, from his uh, his psychology background and sociology, but sometimes he takes these real leaps um, that 
would be something that you would expect more of somebody from more of a uh, an artistic background rather than somebody from a, a scientific background that that leads to these mm. things that sound very intelligent but actually when you unpick them there's a real lack of rigor going on in what he's actually saying and like you know this this idea of just like leaping on individual words like uh, leaping on the idea of environmentalism, leaping on the idea of um, of the climate. You know, it's almost just like this emotive response to a word, rather mm. than actually, well, let's look at the evidence and let look let's look at what that's actually showing. Yes, it's kind of a bit ironic because you know, in other fields, he's very sort of like anti-postmodernists, you know, and 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 the way that <laughs> postmodernists like problematize specific concepts you know uh, and, and like he's busy problematizing words like climate and words like the environment so he's kind of being very postmodern. I mean, do you want to, do you want to you know, explain post modernism a bit for people as well yeah so so oh, it's a, i'm trying to think of a good example but uh you know I, a postmodernist uh, approach might be to well okay okay i can do it like this so so i can't give you uh the best example of what of, of a postmodernist in action, but one one thing, if you're arguing with someone who has a postmodernist persuasion, you'll find that um, you might make a certain sort of point, but then instead of sort of engaging with your point, they kind of they take certain words that you're using and they kind of dissect them in order to sort of undermine them. So it means that by the time that they're they're through with you, they haven't really answered your question, but they've rendered or they've attempted to render. The point that you were making obsolete in the first place so it's a kind of it's a kind of style and in the same way jordan peterson is um the climate you could could say something like the climate is changing and then he's like well what do you mean by climate you know climate climate is everything therefore it's nothing therefore the thing that you've said it doesn't make any sense yeah you know? i mean like you haven't got a point own, from you know? my understanding, <laughs> like, it's almost like he's critiquing postmodernism by using postmodernist methods Probably, yeah, yeah. I mean, he wouldn't like that, but I think it's yeah, people. other people have made that point, certainly, about him. So the next one that we're going to be looking at is about climate modelling errors. What they mean specifically is the human... What, what human beings are doing that's causing the Earth to warm. Right, so right. It's... But you have to include all these factors in the models to determine yeah. that. All these factors. Well, what can you not include? Well, then... By deciding what you don't include, you decide which set of variables are cardinal. And you have to make that decision in some sense before you even generate the models. This is a big problem. It's, there's another reason that, another problem that bedevils climate modeling too, which is that as you stretch out the models across time, the errors increase radically. And mm. so maybe you can predict out a week or three weeks or a month or a year, but the farther out you predict, the more your model's in error. And that's a huge problem when you're trying to model over 100 years because the errors compound just like interest. And so at some point, it's all error. In fact, it's already the case that even if the climate models are right, the error bars are so wide by 100 years out that we'll never be able to measure the effects of the changes we're making now. We'll never know if the changes we're making you know, to save the climate actually worked. We can't measure it. And this one really kind of sits at the heart of the bullshit, really, doesn't it? I mean, like, th this is an example of him using his intellectual understanding of scientific method to say something 
that sounds very convincing, sounds very well thought out, and also is very soundbitey. So little clips mm -hmm. of this could do the rounds on the internet of, look, here's some evidence from Jordan Peterson about why all this climate is bullshit. Where is the actual bullshit in what he said there, Mark? Right, there's an awful lot. <laughs> like, I don't know where to start, really. I mean, to start off with, um, so he was saying, oh, yeah, okay. Right, I'll have to go, I'll go through it chronologically. So first of all, he's saying something about, he starts off by saying something about models. Uh, and he's saying, you know, scientists have to think about, like, you know, what factors they put in their models. And this is a this is a big problem, or he says something like that. And it's like, this is just so elementary and has been part of climate modelling since it began. And so you're, you're saying something that is utterly banal and that that is... Yeah, but but because you're saying it in that fashion, yeah. it gives the sort of sense that hey, well, climate scientists yeah. haven't thought yeah. of this. You know, they haven't. Yeah. If you were, it, so it's it's, yeah. it's if very you, frustrating. If there was any yeah. climate scientists sat there right there, and they straight away would be, yes, Jordan Peterson, you have very simply spelled <laughs> out what climate models are, not the problems with them, but what they are, what we already do. Yes, as as if it's something new. Um, so so yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, okay, so so here, I think you mentioned it before, John, but like climate, uh, sorry, <laughs> climate Peterson, Jordan Peterson is uh, is also, apart from the, the, the fact that he's confused between the scientific industry and activism, he also has a, like a bit of a conceptual uh, misunderstanding between weather and climate. Uh, so, so he's sort of saying, you know, well, you know, the, because of chaos, you know, you you can't, you know, as you run the model, models forward in time, the errors compound. And so, like, by the time you're way out into the future, it could be yeah, fucking anything. Yeah. So, so basically, um, that, that and, idea and, of yeah. when you're looking at day-to-day -day weather, our predictions for weather are very inaccurate because of the chaos inherent in the system. That's correct, yeah. And so so for that reason, we, we don't have an ability to forecast the weather further than two weeks out. So by the time it gets to, I mean, three, two and a half weeks, three weeks, it's, it's could be anything basically. But, but that, yeah, that's, that's to do with the fact that in, in weather, you're, you're, you're typically predicting, you know, in the south of England on this day in the future, what it's going to be. Whereas with climate, you're, you're kind of predicting an average. Mm -hmm. So, so when we, when we talk about the climate in a hundred years, we're talking about the global average temperature, whether it'll be two degrees warmer than the pre-industrial or three degrees warmer. And here you're taking a massive average and so one, I was thinking about some way to sort of explain this. And so, for example, you, if I was to ask somebody to predict in the month of July next year, where will an earthquake happen on mm. planet Earth? It's just really, really difficult to do that. However, if you were... Sorry, this is not a perfect example, but, but it sort of explains how averages are slightly easier to, to sort of predict. If you were to sort of say, okay, how many earthquakes are we likely to see within the whole year of 2025 you know that's when we're much more likely to get that right because we're taking sort of an average so all the all the small variations what else by a hundred years out by the end of the the by 2100 there, there are error bars on where we think the climate will be and it's also interesting to note that these error bars are also a largely the various reasons why there are these error bars but first of all they're not so big that uh, we have absolutely no idea yeah. what's going to happen. So, so if we if we carry on business as usual, I don't know what the the temperature range is. Maybe it's like 
plus three to plus six mm. or something like that. So that's the difference between pretty awful and absolutely yeah, yeah. catastrophic. And so, so that's that's already enough information uh, to to mean that we should have enough motive to to sort of you know cut our carbon emissions and things like that. So so there is there is error. He's not completely wrong there, but it's not to the point where we just yeah, have no useful information yeah. at all. His idea that the the errors are basically meaning that the results are meaningless isn't the case at all. The errors, even though there are variants in those, are still showing that there is a significant increase in the average and that average is going to have an impact and that impact needs to have something done about it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I've also, I've got written uh, down here, I mean, like, one thing that you've, yeah, I think you talked about when we were discussing this previously was the idea of um, the fact that we can predict some systems that operate uh, in the world, in the world, in the universe. For example, Halley's comet. You know, so we can accurately predict yes. that every seventy-five, seventy-six, seventy-four, whatever number of years it is, that that will come around. So even when you've got variables that you cannot control, there are systems and processes that you can accurately predict based on what we've had previously absolutely correct yeah it, it depends it, it depends on on what you're modeling what problem you're modeling and uh so 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 the weather is sensitive to the initial conditions so if you have like when you when you start your model if you have a slight error in the decimal place you know in in one of the variables then that that error will grow and grow and grow but that's not always the case depending on uh the the system that you're modeling. So with Halley's Comet, you know, we can we can probably fairly accurately know where it's going to be in hundreds of years because in some ways it's a simpler mm. problem. Uh, and with things like, you know, climate change, you know, we we know that we, we, we have we have it fairly sort of solidly down that the, the sort of greenhouse gases cause warming and the relationship between warming and the greenhouse gases. And so, you know, if we keep pumping these out into the atmosphere, and they don't get taken down somehow, the temperature is going to rise. And so it's not actually, in a weird way, climate is, I mean, th there are complications in the system, you know, how, how is the how is the ocean going to react? How is the land yeah. going to react? You know, and also, also, how are we going to react? Like, are we going to, I mean, you could see a future between now and 2100 where, where we decide to get our act together and yeah. really, really cut yeah. carbon emissions and, and they fall. And then, the, so the temperature won't be as high, you know, or we could, you know, do the complete opposite and just keep on pumping them out. And so, so it's actually, you know, so we are a big factor in this scheme. And that's part of the reason why you've got sort of the, the, the error bars about what, what the temperature is going to be like. But it's not really to do with the initial conditions. So it's a different problem, yeah, like absolutely. you say. I mean, like, because there are elements of uh, the, the science that can be done in a vacuum, as it were. You know, we do know that the uh, what ha what carbon dioxide does in the atmosphere we also know that the carbon dioxide has increased we also know what's caused that increase and we also know what will continue to happen if that increase continues to happen within a degree of tolerance mm. i mean i think something you also mentioned previously as well that like the accuracy of the predictions in 100 years time depends on the question we're asking um, so you were you were telling me previously that um, we can predict the global system and the global average much better than we can predict individual areas so it's harder to predict what the climate will be like in Europe, say, for example, in 100 years, than it would be for the global average as a whole. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, thank you for reminding me. That's a very good point. So I guess it comes back to, so so if we're taking the climate of the globe and we reduce it down to the climate of Europe, we're sort of taking over a slightly uh, smaller geographical area. And because of that, you know, there, there are going to be factors which influence Europe that don't affect everywhere else. So because of that, it might become a different problem and a different complexity of problem. But again, but again, so but but Jordan to Jordan Peterson, like he's seen the weather. He knows he, you can't predict the weather in three weeks. Therefore, <laughs> how are you going to predict the weather in a hundred years? Yeah, and it's like yeah, it's not the yeah, weather, it's, dude. It's, <laughs> it's, it's about it's, as as he's about as much an expert in this as just your average person writing comments on a YouTube video. Like he has no mm. experience to be able to be arguing these claims, but unfortunately has a large enough platform of people who listen and believe what he says. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, isn't it? Because this, this is where their, their knowledge is going to come from. They're going to be like, oh, Jordan Peterson's sceptical. I'm sceptical, yeah. you know, because he sounds like he knows yeah. what he's talking about. Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah. And, he, and he isn't. <laughs> he doesn't, yeah. rather. And- so depending on the problem that you're modelling, you don't have to include everything. You need to include what's relevant to the problem, you know, and, and, and necessarily uh, that's going to involve a simplification of the, the number of variables. But provided, you know, the what you've included in there will give you the answer you seek, that's fine. You know, like in, to, to, to model Haley's Comet, you don't need to sort of have who's going to be the next president of the yeah, United States yeah, in there, you yeah. know, obviously. So only certain things are relevant yeah. to that problem. And yeah. And, and then some things are maybe have a, an impact, but the impact's not large enough to worry about or... There are other ways of dealing with it. So it's okay to simplify climate models, and that's what they do, because you can't have everything in the computer. So (laughs) everything is not everything. We have conclusively proven today. (laughs) Okay, so our next clip then uh, is about Jordan Peterson discussing coastal management. Now, although we have kind of ripped into him a little bit here uh, about um, his lack of expertise, he does claim in this section prior to the clip that we've recorded he does claim to be a lot more of an expert on this uh, because he's read hundreds of books apparently on the topic hundreds so he had a role involved involved in a kind of advisory role in the canadian government on sustainability and this is him talking about the the problems of coastal management because i did realize that one thing we're doing that's extraordinarily stupid on the ecological front is destroying all the marine life within 40 miles of the shores and all the marine life is with for, within 40 miles of the shores like you think the oceans they're vast it's like right. yeah but they're empty yeah. except for where the sun can shine to the bottom and that's the 40 to 200 miles say on the coastal shelves and we've like trawled those bare like seven times it's wild? a catastrophe so but that was the only real environmental catastrophe that I encountered in all that work that I thought was both credible and addressable. We know how to fix that. You make marine protected areas like national parks that you need about 15% of the total coastal territory really protected. And that solves that problem essentially. And then everybody has fish because the fish, they don't just stay there, they move around. You can have your cake and eat it too with marine protected areas. Okay, so he does care about the environment. I care because <laughs> yes. this one issue is solvable and we can do something about it and matters, everything else is bollocks. That, that's basically 
kind of what he's saying, I guess. I mean, like, like it was actually a little bit refreshing, this section, to be honest, because he says some things which are correct. <laughs> like, like, yeah, like, I mean, the, the way we treat the ocean is, uh, and the sort of, yeah, fishing, fisheries and, and whatnot, and trawling, it, it's all true. <laughs> and, you know, we, we are we are abusing it, basically, and we should probably take a good, long, hard look at ourselves I don't know. He's kind of using it to say that look, look. I'm listen. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not like anti the environment per se. I just think I've looked at the evidence and there is no, there is no other problem here apart from this one problem. So this sort of gives him a sort of like. I, I guess he's sort of saying this to say to give as evidence that he's not uncaring. He does care about an environmental yeah, problem. And, look, and that the he oceans. does have some expertise um, in this as well. Yeah, he's obviously read something, and it's obviously been okay. You know, I mean, like, was was he's a bit hyperbolic? Like, what was he like? We we've we've trawled all the coastal shelves completely bare mm. seven times, and it's like, yeah, that that's obviously a bit of a hyperbolic statement because uh, if you trawled them bare, then you wouldn't trawl yeah. them again, presumably. But yeah, and also, yeah, what was he, what he was saying um, that it's the only environmental problem that is credible and addressable so it sort of made me wonder whether if we had in his mind an environmental problem that was credible but wasn't addressable then then we could ignore it because yeah. it's it's not both of those things it just seemed seemed a bit weird but or not credible but, yeah. but addressable <laughs> well that would <laughs> yeah, be a bit of an odd problem. problem that doesn't need solving yeah so like can you can you pin his, pin him down on other specific things that he's not mentioned here then when he's saying that uh, trawling the, the the coasts bare is the only problem what other very directly obviously quantifiable problems are there yeah that's a good point thank you for reminding me of that because i i even just before we came on uh, i actually looked up there's this pie chart which is kind of really good and it's um it basically summarizes in one diagram all the different problems environmental problems that we have and it also shows you of them there's about eight or nine on the graph and I'll, I'll read them out in a second but it also tells you like how how dangerous is the current situation right. with regard to them so for example if you look at stratospheric ozone depletion there is a bit of a problem there at the moment but it's we're still within we're still under the limit under yeah. sort of the safe space in the green zone but then you have Okay, so if we talk about the biggest problems first, according to this graph, you have biodiversity loss is just off the chart, uh, which I think we all know about. So like, you know, we're, I think it's quite commonly accepted that yeah. we're in a mass extinction event yeah. that we're causing. Um, and also, I don't, I can't say I understand this one very well, but there's a problem with the nitrogen cycle. Uh, and it's probably related to our use and abuse of fertilizer, okay. I would imagine. What deliberately uh, putting, also, taking nitrogen uh, from the atmosphere and putting it into the soil, and then that causing an imbalance, is it? Or uh, yes, I, this is where where I'm a bit hazy, to be honest. I should really know this, but um, it, well, I mean, there's, there's certainly problems with fertilizer going into rivers and then right, damaging yeah. rivers. But that I don't know whether that's what they're referring to. But but okay, so then you have climate change, which is. Uh, Above the, the sort of the, the safe operating space, you have uh, ocean acidification, sort of separate. It's about the oceans becoming and so more that acidic. Destroys coral life um, and, and, and I presume 
fish can't survive in more acidic water. And... Yeah, I, I'm not so 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 certainly the and the corals are sort of like the uh, the sort of the biodiversity hub for a lot of the the marine ecosystems. So if you if if the corals go, then a lot of the you know sort of the food food yeah. web goes, as it were. Um, but but also like little individual creatures have like um, shells made of calcium carbonate, and these right, shells will dissolve okay. in in ocean. Uh, in in an acidifying ocean, we've got uh, global freshwater use. Uh, we're 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 busy sort of like pulling out um, sort of supplies of like fresh water from underneath the ground at an unsustainable rate. We have uh, changes in land use. Uh, we have atmospheric aerosol loading. We have chemical pollution. Have I mentioned all of them? There's also problems with the phosphorus cycle. This is this is probably also to do with fertilizer. Uh, yeah, so there's a, I'll I'll put this in the show notes this this graph, but you can sort of see that yeah that there are there are there's a myriad of environmental problems. Some are more serious than others. They're all they're all not looking great to be honest. Um, but but the idea that the ocean is the only thing that's got a problem, yeah, that's. I mean, like I think it was, I, there was so much to mention in the not the last. Uh, section you played out from Peterson, yeah. but the one before that, but but it, but I didn't even get round <laughs> to saying it. <laughs> I, I made about four points, and you 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 prompted me to make another two. Oh, well, I still go, haven't go made ahead, all of, what, all of them. So, so you could you could hear that there was a sort of like a level two of the ziggurat. You know, like the climate may be warming, but humans are not responsible. There was that kind of vibe in it. I can't now specifically remember what he said, but. But oh yeah yeah no this is what he said so so he said like because there's so much error in the um, you know in the forecasts for a hundred years time we we wouldn't know if changes that we make today would actually have caused any impact you know even if we waited eighty years uh, because you know because there'd be so much you know error error on it and and and, and like in this I just thought look look we. We, we we have it fairly well down from like hundreds of years of science about the relationship between greenhouse gases and and sort of global warming. You know, it's 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 something we've already got down. So so we don't even need to wait for like years into the future to to to, to know what yeah. we're doing now is correct. You know, if we if we stop pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere now, it is pretty certain that the that the yeah. climate will cool again. You know, or stop getting warmer. Like you know we. We already understand that it's based on, you know, on sort of the physics that we know, the thermal physics of these gases. Yeah, you know? it's, this, and, it's um, almost this kind of way of just saying, so we just don't need to do anything. It's too, it's too big a problem. Exactly. And it's like, you know, so much unknown. So we just should just carry on as we are, just making things worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we don't know is what he's sort of saying. You know? We don't know. So we can't do anything, you know. Sorry, I'm getting a bit heated with as well, time goes is, on this throughout this. This is what pisses me I, off I wasn't ultimately this. about this kind of argument. Because so often when the shoe is on the other foot, like people like us are accused of not coming up with solutions, not being solution focused, you know, being too worried about the problems rather than what you're going to do about it, you know, not being pragmatic. And this is an example of like somebody who claims to not be right wing but really is quite right wing actually just refusing to do something that we can do something about because it's hard and because it's a big problem and actually i think one of the greatest things about humanity is that when we put our mind to it we can overcome huge problems that are very difficult 
when we decide to do something about it. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't really see uh, any, any anything proactive. I mean, he doesn't even he's he doesn't believe the problem <laughs> is real, so he's, he's not going to come up with any any problems. But uh, but so yeah. Anyway, is there anything else that you wanted to say on that previous clip at all, Mark? <laughs> I, I think I maxed it out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, oh, yeah. I was just going to say, uh, Rogan start. Sorry, this is yeah. We're, we're doing this in the wrong order, but but the, the very beginning of that because it was quite. There was just so much he said that needed addressing. But at the very beginning, Rogan sort of comes in and sort of uh, you know basically explains what climate is. You know, so he's having Joe Rogan, who is not a climate expert, sort of try and like <laughs> clarify <laughs> the, the subject matter. For it. I just thought that was, that was that was nice. Rogan does a sort of a, he's he's not an expert, obviously, but he does a fairly okay job at holding Jordan Peterson to the fire on occasion. Yeah. So, so yeah. So there is there is yeah, a little bit of pushback. Absolutely. It's not like and, a free. Uh, there is a little yeah. bit more of that with some of the later clips that we're going to look at as well. And you know, also on the climate modelling errors, you know, some of the analogies that he goes on to talk about are just batshit, absolutely mad. Like, I mean, go and listen to the original episode if you want. It was too long-winded and convoluted uh, a clip for me to actually be able to edit into anything that made any sense. But he starts going on about an, an analogy between ants and grasshoppers. And it is just a long <laughs> chain of nonsense, half-baked, half-thought-through analogies that don't actually link up. It sounds really clever, but when you stop and unpick them all, it doesn't make a cogent argument. Mm. Right. I think I remember okay, that. <laughs> so our next clip. Um, okay, so making the poor rich will solve the environmental problems. Okay, here we go. But mostly what I learned, and this was really cool, was that this was so cool, and I really believe it's true. Uh, the fastest way to make the planet sustainably green and ecologically viable is to make poor people as rich as possible as fast as we possibly can okay so here he's put in the first stumbling block for people the idea that if you argue against this argument that it's a good thing to make the poor richer well then you just come across like a bastard don't you <laughs> no of course we shouldn't make you do yes richer. yes It'd be a disaster. I mean, yeah. I mean, was it was he? Yeah. Sorry, I thought that that uh, that quote was going to be. We a bit do longer. have the second half uh, of it. So maybe we do maybe. come back to in a bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, so so basically, I agree with you there. Like, it's, it's a sort of a. It sort of feels like a trap, doesn't it? Um, but 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 rest assured that you and I, John, we don't want to. Yeah, we want the poor to become richer. So I think you know, uh, you've you've mentioned to me previously that like it, in some sense it is true in that the idea that generally when people do become better off, then they have fewer children, which then could help in the short term. Yeah. And also that uh, coal is currently necessary for the poor, that, uh, that if we kind of move to people being wealthier, that we then would potentially be able to move away from a reliance on coal. Is that potentially an angle there? So, so I think I think that's yeah that's, that's what he's he's getting at. So like you have you get richer, you have fewer children, and then uh, so I guess at a very simplistic level, fewer people means in less environmental destruction generally. But you've also got the 
<laughs> I mean, so for example, if you take if you take a look at um, you know the developing world now, you know where there are lots of people, when you look at the overall footprint of somewhere, I don't know, like Bangladesh, it, you know, it is it is far far. This is from a climate perspective, obviously, um, not necessarily other environmental problems. But you've got you've got just a a much compared yeah. to somewhere like America, for example, the the amount of you know for emissions per person is far far lower. And then if you go to, I don't know, so the, one of the richest countries in the world, Sweden, you know, are people there necessarily, uh, you know, paragons of environmental virtue? It's not necessarily the case. So I think it's, it, he's not wrong in, in a certain sort of way, but but also it's yeah. not quite as simple as that, you know. And, and so so I think basically he's like, you know, stop stop all this activism, stop all, stop, all, stop, stop doing anything else apart from, you know, yeah. economic development. But, but economic development on its own is not going to um you know yeah. be a magic bullet you know in the yeah, in his very simplistic I mean, like, understanding like the, every, it's it's just common knowledge isn't it that you know the top one percent of carbon emission uh, top one percent of wealthy people are responsible for the vast vast majority of, of carbon emissions and that it's it's the inverse of that that actually it's the very very wealthy that are the biggest cause of carbon emissions and that like uplifting the poor, like obviously it's not going to dramatically make things worse, but it's certainly not going to solve the problem. It's just going to be adding more into the system. And like the the argument that he also makes and, and goes on to make in a, in a very long winded way uh, is the idea that when you are on the breadline and when you are living a subsistence lifestyle, you don't care about the bigger issues. You don't care about the environment because you're more focused on meeting your, your Maslow's needs of like getting food, getting water, getting basic sustenance. Mm. And like the idea that he says, the, the point that he makes that you, as you get wealthier, you then are able to care about these issues. So you do is an example of, of a false equivalence and a massive assumption because you know it's quite obvious that just because you are wealthy doesn't mean that you automatically give a shit about the environment you know if anything we're very much seeing mm. the opposite in a lot of ways and the idea that you being poor therefore you don't care about the environment is also really patronizing and also shows a real like kind of western centralized view of the world because say for example if you're somebody that lives in like island nations out in the pacific you don't have to be wealthy to be giving a shit about climate change because climate change is already an existential crisis for your country like climate change matters to mm. the poor just as much if not more than it matters to the rich yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, irrespective of whether whether the poor of the world are, um, you know, have have climate change first and foremost on their on their minds, you know, like climate change is going to be a huge problem for the developing world in the future. So, you know, they they need to we need to sort this problem out so that sorry, sorry, maybe I'm maybe I'm mixing up things, but but um, but yeah, in in any in any case, like I think we need to help. The poor sort of jump over using yeah. things yeah. like coal, yeah. leapfrog these technologies. So, so I think that should be on us. Yeah, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah, if, if countries can move straight to sustainable energy uh, methods 
like in the first in the first instance that's just going to be such a game changer for for the future of the planet mm-hmm. okay so our next one um is about capitalism has not caused environmental problems it's the other way round if the politicians who are discussing environmental sustainability were serious especially the left-wing ones and I say especially because the left-wing ones always say, well, we care about the poor and dispossessed. It's like, do you really? When push comes to shove, it's like, is it the environment or poor people? If your idea is that we have to limit growth to save the planet. If we limit growth, poor people starve. Because whenever we put limits on economic development, who suffers? The rich? Are you, are you really? That's what you think? And you're on the left? You think if you put limits on economic development, the rich will suffer? That runs contrary to every theory that your whole political philosophy is based on. You put limits to growth on, the poor stay poor or get worse. doesn't matter because the planet has too many people on it anyways, which it most certainly does not. If you are serious about the environment and even vaguely concerned about poor people, all of your policies would be devoted to making the poor rich as fast as possible. But that would violate the anti-capitalist presumption, let's say, that the reason for environmental degradation in the first place is, say, entrepreneurial and free market development, which it most certainly isn't. That's actually completely backwards. Make poor people rich. So what should a COP26 been about? That's fairly straightforward. It should have been about trying to generate as much energy as we possibly can to be distributed as widely as possible in the cheapest possible manner. Okay, so a bit of a longer one there, and quite a lot to to unpick. Mm. Uh, so, what are you what are you thinking on that, Mark? Yeah, so so initially he's sort of you know sort of he's trying to sort of say that left wingers seem to be sort of sacrificing the poor, you know, to help the environment. And I think I think several things that we've said in the previous segment I that just that that is that isn't really an uh, an accurate characterization for the most part. There, I guess there are there are some sort of, I guess, anti-capitalists who have sort of an idea that we can, we can sort of, um, growth is part of the problem that's causing climate change and, and environmental problems more generally. And there is a kind of like, there, there, it is kind of true, but, but equally, if you, if you sort of say, like, we can't have any more growth, then, you, then the whole sort of economic system that the world is based on, you know, might grind to a halt if we were theoretically able to stop it. Uh, and that, and that, probably would have a lot of deleterious effects for you know the, the well everyone but 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 especially the poor people so i think he's kind of he's got a point there you know it's it, it might be a bit idealistic to sort of think that we you know we need to stop growth which some environmentalists mm. and left-wing people do think um i mean i just think personally that you've got yeah. to make the growth greener somehow so so stop using fossil fuels yeah, for example I mean, get like, on renewables mind, it's, it's just um, it's a, yeah. just a a re-evaluation of what you're investing in it's not anti-investment it's just changing what now that we know that what we're investing in is damaging let's invest in some things that are not and that are because let's be honest the concept of something being sustainable how is not that not a good thing like the idea of something being able mm, to keep yeah. going surely is a good economic model surely a bad economic model is running out because that's going to grind things to a halt yes. far quicker. Yeah, yeah, it's. I, I totally agree there. 
Uh, I mean, like, yeah, he, well, his, 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 he advocates, we need to get as much, at COP26, we need to get as much energy to the poor as possible. It's like surely it matters how you produce that energy, and and like and and again, we're I'm, we're not saying the poor should go without energy, but but people like me, for example, would think that we need to help them, you know, because they're not as rich as us. We need to help them get their energy yeah, from and, sources. And by other rich as well, fuels. we also mean it, you know, it's an infrastructure thing as well. Um, you know, like it, the the countries that are struggling to develop, you know, they they do not have the th- the systems in place in order to benefit from these new technologies yet. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, shall we move on to the next clip then? Okay, so yep. next one. This is a, a great non sequitur, this one. Okay, uh, the dangers of solar energy. Yeah, we still have a weird idea of nuclear because of the several, you know, whether it's uh, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, there's been a few disasters. Yeah, more you know, people Fukushima. die every year from solar energy than die from nuclear. Who dies from solar? <laughs> well, Ge- of course, guess, guess how you die from solar? Uh, sunburn? No, you fall off the roofs when you're installing it. Oh, yeah, that's oh, gravity, right? Yeah, gravity, gravity. Yeah. And you know that's a good example of unintended consequences, because systems are complex, and when you change them, you think only good things will happen. It's like, well, fuck me, like. What is this argument all about? Like, how can you take anyone seriously who argues that we shouldn't use solar panels because some people have fallen off the roof from installing them? Like, you know, that's like, it's just a bullshit non sequitur. Like, you know, how many people die on gas stations from exploding gas or die on oil plantations or who have driven their truck containing oil somewhere like you know it's just an absolute ridiculous statistic to throw out there you know and like say for example you know when people like are having car when people die in a car accident if they were driving to go on holiday you don't say oh it was holidays that killed them if only people went on less <laughs> holidays there would be less car crashes it's just absolute bollocks yeah like the was I think the thing that he conspicuously misses out here is is like if you I actually went and looked up you know sort of how many people was it die from yeah. falling off roofs or something like that I can't remember but 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 what was interesting is you, if you look at the, diff, the deaths from different like forms of energy you know you have at the bottom you've got sort of nuclear yeah. and solar with almost none you know uh, but of course they stick in our minds yeah. because of things yeah. like Chernobyl and whatnot. But then you you look at the, then you look at like coal oil and gas and it just yeah. like blows yeah. them out of the water. So 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 why why are we why are we here talking about you know like sort of people falling off roofs when 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 like every year people are, are have reduced life expectancy and pr- dying prematurely because of you know inhaling particulates from coal. Yeah. You know it's it's yeah. it's enormous. Yeah, it's, it's such a cherry picking yeah. of facts in order to like spin this yeah. whole kind of constructed argument that he's made rather than than actually going looking at all the evidence and going there's your biggest problem yeah exactly okay uh, yeah. so next up we have him talking about um, particle pollution and the impact of particle pollution on children yeah so poor the poorest people burn wood well that's not so good because first of all they cut down the trees and burn the trees and second, 
if you're concerned about pollution, especially particulate pollution, especially indoors, which kills, I think, 7 million children a year, 7 million children a year are killed by indoor particulate pollution. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How is well, that possible? Okay, so this is this is one that actually uh, is another example of Joe Rogan really really going to town to him, and, and something we didn't mention in the last one about Joe Rogan making the very good point of going, no, they're not dying from solar, they're dying from gravity. Uh, like, and, and this is another one where like he, he goes away and, and fact checks him fact checks him on this. So, have you got anything to add about the the indoor particle pollution here, Mark? I mean, first of all, we've got like two different problems. We've got climate change and then we've got sort of the indoor health problems from burning sort of wood. And, 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 and everyone thinks that, you know, ev that, that basically the poor of the world yeah. need to get electricity so that they can avoid this problem. Because it's a serious health problem, you know. So, But I mean, I guess he starts sort of saying, you know, sort of coal is better than wood. Uh, but it's sort of, you see, it jumps when you when you go to sort of fossil fuels because fossil fuels typically get generated in a power station you know mm -hmm. so you don't need to have them in in the home so so that, and so for, of course like going going to coal having the country run on coal is better yeah. for your yeah. indoor air pollution problem but 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 obviously it's very bad from a climate perspective and so it's it's you know so so on the one hand you can be for you know getting sort of wood burning out of like individual houses uh, but you can be against coal. They're not sort of yeah. mutually exclusive positions, yeah. but he seems to be implying yeah. that they are, you know. But again, it's a conceptual lack of clarity because he's sort of thinking environmental problem, you know, air pollution in the house, carbon dioxide. Yeah, in the, you know, it's just, yeah, the, yeah, the argument that just like by burning your coal outdoors, that's going to reduce your indoor particle pollution. Of course it will, but it's not actually going to reduce pollution mm. okay so yeah. next up he uh, is talking about fracking and the benefits of fracking and so so you want to burn wood well yeah. charcoal's better coal's better than that in terms of pollution as well uh -huh. and then fossil fuels are better than coal and then natural gas is perhaps the cleanest of the fossil fuels and maybe i don't know if you know this but this is also this is so funny too the united states has cut its carbon emissions 15 percent in the last 20 years it's gone down not up, down. Why? Why? Fracking. Fracking. Yeah, fracking. Really? This thing that environmentalists hate. It's like, don't but frack. It's a, it's but like... it's a double-edged sword, right? Because fracking has definitely polluted some water supplies. Not really. Sounds yeah. awfully confident so, there. <laughs> okay. So yeah. fracking has reduced pollution and it doesn't have environmental effects on rivers. Those are the claims he makes there. What do you think, Mark? Well, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't know that much about fracking and its, in, and its environmental pollution. I, th I presume it does cause some sort of pollution of un, 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 underground water. I mean, it's probably true that, um, you know, as, as sort of more and more coal mines shut down in the US and they, they move towards sort of fracking and natural gas, it probably has a lower emission associated with it. So it's possibly true uh, that, that the, the U.S. has managed to shave off 15 percent of its emissions via going to fracking. I mean, that doesn't mean fracking can have lots of other problems associated with it. But also, like, in general, they, sometimes people talk about yeah. natural gas as a transition fuel. You know, like, so, so ultimately we've got to get away from it as well, you know, but, but it's better than coal. Um, but the problem is, I think, when people sort of tend to sort of go for natural gas... Yeah. And then sort of stay there, you know, and have no no plans to continue 
decarbonizing. So, I mean, 15, great that the US has cut its emissions by 15%. Yeah. It needs to do a lot more. Uh, it's not going to be able to, you know, if it wants to be part of the effort to sort of deal yeah. with climate change, that's yeah. not enough, yeah. even though it's something. Okay, so our next clip then about reducing carbon emissions. I still want to, like, we've kind of, like, you, you went on these rants, so I want to, like, bring you back to, like, this idea of climate environment. We should be concerned not just about particulate pollution, but shouldn't we be concerned about the effect that we're having on the CO2 that we release in the atmosphere? Now, from what I've read, it has an impact. They don't exactly know what percentage of an impact it has, but it's most certainly something that we can reduce. What well, I also well, that, read... that's not on, so certain. Whatever, Okay, so this is one that really lies at the heart of what we look at, doesn't it? You know, Joe Rogan pointing out his waffling and saying, but let's pin you down on actual CO2 going into the atmosphere. It is happening and it is something we can do something about. And Jordan Peterson says, no, we can't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like J Joe Rogan starts off well and, and then he, he sort of said, well, we're not kind of really sure how much of an impact it's like, yes, we do know how much of an impact. We've got that pretty well turned down. So even in Joe Rogan's statement, there's a yeah. sort of a there's a bit of climate denial, you know, like the the type two. It's 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 I mean it's he's sort of saying we are a little bit to blame, but maybe we're not totally to blame, you know, kind of that's the sort of where he is. And then Jordan Peterson comes in and says, no, we're not sure about that. So he's saying even your skeptical position, it's not skeptical enough, you know. So he's I guess he's trying to argue that there is no impact. Or something like that. So, so yeah, this this comes back to good old fashioned yeah. level one, level two climate denial. You know, the sort of absolute denial of science. Um, and and if you had read two hundred books, Jordan Peterson, as you claim to, you wouldn't be confused about this. What? So we we just need to direct him to listen to our earlier episodes, don't we? Yeah, go go and listen to those. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he'll listen. I'm 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 sure he'll listen. As he's got a very open mind. Yeah, you know. Yeah could be wrong he knows that you know. okay and i think we might well be on to our last clip here so let's give this a spin i've been very curious about why the left-wing types particularly seem willing to sacrifice the poor to their utopian i don't think they're thinking that way i just yeah, don't but think when push comes it to, all when out. push comes to shove that's what they do and and it wouldn't take much thought to figure it out because let's say you you increase the cost of energy and that's the price you pay to move forward to a hypothetically green economy. But you increase the price of energy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what happens is that in any system that's hierarchical, and this is the left-wingers know this because it drives their whole philosophy, in any hierarchical system, when you stress the system, the disproportionate amount of that stress falls on the people who are in the lower rungs because they're barely hanging on anyway. So, you know, you get a 1% increase in unemployment, you get a 5% increase in psychiatric hospitalizations. Well, why? It's because there's a bunch of people there who are right on the threshold of psychiatric hospitalization, and then they lose their job. Okay, so uh, the fundamentals of what he's talking about here, I, I think, are relatively true. The, the idea that, you know, if you stress uh, any kind of system, that that is going to disproportionately affect those that are right on the threshold of being able to sustain. You know, we're seeing that even in the UK with the cost of living crisis at the moment. Uh, those people right on the breadline suffer the most. Uh, but his argument that a move towards uh, a greener system will be more expensive and also 
moving to a green system is going to sit stress the system how much truth is there in those claims then right so i i guess i guess that there is a little bit of truth so so it's it's really annoying in a, in a certain sort of way because you know if we'd started earlier with transitioning away from fossil fuels it would have been a lot cheaper you know so there is going to you know like we for example just in the uk you know like we need to ultimately people need to use sort of electric vehicles and they need to be plugged into the grid so there there is an awful lot of infrastructure i think in the uk labor had up until a few days ago a 28 yeah. billion green spending package you know, which they, they ditched um, I, i'm really putting my vote at risk i'm not going to lie and you know like it's also been this week in the news in the uk come out about uh, the house of lords uh, wanting to um, take action says the government needs to take action against misinformation uh, going out through the press um, about uh, electric vehicles as well. I think you shared an article with me on that as well. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly. This, this is important. What you've just been saying. The, the thing, the thing with climate change is so. Okay, if you if you bugger it up and you put, if you say, okay, we need to transition to a green economy, but we're gonna, all the costs are gonna be borne by the poorest. You're gonna you're gonna just get resentment. You're gonna get populism. You just it's not gonna work. Okay, so if you you know you need to have some sort of fair way of society burdening the cost and perhaps maybe some some of the yeah. some of the polluters <laughs> how, how ironic. Need to pay. How ironic. you know some of the people who are making like a lots of like oh but if we change this system it's going to be the poor that are going to bear the brunt of this and it's like but it's the richest that are causing it so maybe that's something that needs addressing it's all about accountability in my in my opinion really yes but uh, but also like that the, you know even with Jordan Peterson's argument like the I mean again he doesn't think this is a real problem but it is and it's it's going to get, if we don't do anything about it it's just going to the costs are just going to go up and up and up so so we're not going to be we're, we're not we're not spared with some hypothetical future where we don't have to pay these increased costs someone is going to pay and if we if we if we delay then we're going to have to pay more but but yeah but but there is there is a there is a cost and this cost needs to be carefully thought about how it's how it's burdened because otherwise we're not going to successfully transition to a green future if we if we yeah. bugger it up. Yeah, I'm stupid about it. Okay, well, I think that's it. I think we've pretty comprehensively gone through and, and unpicked the major points that he makes there. There is there is more in the in the clip. So if you are interested, go and go and give it uh, the original version a listen, even if it's just a check to make sure that we haven't like cherry picked or or altered his words or what he's saying at all. So what are your overall thoughts then on Jordan Peterson then, Mark? Right. So I, I find him an interesting case because he is obviously quite confused about the subject matter he's discussing. Uh, for example, the distinction between climate activism and climate science. He doesn't appear to have much of an idea about weather and climate. He, he muddles up all the time. So that's just a, a couple of examples. And because he's so hopelessly confused, I kind of weirdly see him as a a victim of climate disinformation, more so than a denier or contrarian. But that being said, victim or not, he's promoting denial and misinformation in front of an enormous audience. I mean, Joe Rogan's podcast has what was it, 200 million downloads a month. That's astounding. And that is a lot of damage. Yeah, we're, we're not that I, John, to slow you <laughs> No, we're not. Not by a long shot. <laughs> but, but we try, John, we try. A few podcasts ago, we talked about why there is so much climate denial out there. 
and, and one of the three categories we came up with was a sort of a social psychological angle, uh, the culture war. And, and Jordan, if you look through his 100 plus tweets per day on Twitter, you can see that he's eyeball deep in the culture war. Therefore, for him, he, he's, he's basically anything that's anti the left, he's against. And so that's why he sort of turns towards stuff that is quite climate denially. Apart from that, there's a, a few moments in the interview where you get the sense that he just sort of can't believe that such a large problem could possibly exist. Maybe he could benefit from seeing that image we sometimes show uh, where you have like the, the solid earth and then you have the, the atmosphere wrapped up into a marble uh, and the ocean as well wrapped up into a marble and you sort of can see the, the relative sizes. It, it, but in any case, I, I, I don't think he'd be interested in, in learning because gurus like Peterson uh, tell others what to think. They don't have plebs like self-proclaimed gurus, yeah. They, but they, 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 they tell others what to think. They don't have plebs like yeah. us telling them what to think, basically. Or, you know, people who, who know something about a subject. Uh, if you're interested in examining Jordan from uh, the point of view of a guru, you'd do worse than check out the episode of a podcast called Decoding the Gurus and I'll put a link in the show notes, they argue that one of the qualities of a guru is a characteristic called galaxy brainness or polymathness. Uh, the, the ability to have expertise in multiple domains simultaneously. And this is you pointed this out again and again, uh, John, about Jordan Peterson. Uh, and now maybe like out there polymaths exist, um, and I'm not going to comment on that, but what I do know is is that the world is awash with self-proclaimed polymaths, and the result is what you get here. Jordan speaks with absolute confidence on a subject on which he hasn't understood the basics, particularly when it comes to basic climate science. But he can seemingly get away with this because knowledge of climate science must be low in the audience, um, or maybe his audience is here for the the culture war hot takes than for for knowledge per se, and. Although Jogan, Joe Rogan pushes back a little bit from time to time, doesn't do quite the job that you might have hoped in holding his feet to the fire, because obviously he's not an expert either. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so those are my thoughts. So no, do you, do you well, have anything I mean, like, to add to that, John? I was or? at some points when I was kind of listening to the episode, I was thinking, oh, here, here we've got a podcast, two white guys that are criticizing things that they don't actually know a whole lot about. And I do appreciate the irony of us being two white guys criticizing two white guys and <laughs> one of us at least on the podcast who doesn't know a whole lot about climate science but we do at least have yourself who's the real expert on this so you know like i'm hoping that we have at least done something towards uh, combating some of the 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 untruths or the errors or the misconceptions that are addressed here it's been a while since the podcast got released uh, yeah. so it might be old news yeah. and everyone's moved on and no one gives a shit anymore but but you know, <laughs> it's just it's, it's it's it was nice to sort of actually like yeah, you know, engage with some I've, content. I've like had quite a lot of fun like yeah. picking this apart. It's been quite fun. Maybe we should do something similar in the future. But let us know if people uh, like the episode and uh, if you want more of it, or if you've got other climate deniers that you would like us to to combat in an episode, and we'll we'll see what we can do. Right, should we uh, move on to a good news story then, Mark? Okay, yes, so please. this is a, a good one. news story uh, about green energy, and this is a recent study that has concluded that tripling green energy by 2030 
is achievable. So this is following on from 2023. You know, it's been really widespread in the news that it was the hottest year on record. And uh, a report from the International Energy a Agency, the IEA, has said that there's been a record-breaking rollout of renewables in 2023 uh, that puts us in with a real chance of tripling energy capacity by the end of the decade, which was a key target uh, agreed at the COP28 climate summit. So the uh, largest growth across the whole world took place in China, which commissioned as much solar energy mm. in 2023 as the entire world did in 2022. Their wind power additions have also risen wow. by 66% year on year. And the country's emissions, well, carbon emissions are predicted to peak this year. Uh, also in the UK, uh, heat pump installations really? have reached a record high. So wow. yeah, it seems like some some of the biggest countries, you know, are really at tipping points when it comes to uh, energy emissions, which is a real positive. So it said that currently, cu yeah. under current policies and market conditions, global renewal capacity is on course to increase by two and a half times. But that's not yet enough to reach our goal of reaching triple renewables. But that is something that we can do, that we, countries are demonstrating that it can be done. The governments have got the tools to close the gap. They've just got to have the willpower and the policies to see that through. Uh, he said that onshore, so this is the executive director of IEA, said that onshore wind and solar PV are cheaper today than new fossil fuel plants almost everywhere and cheaper than existing fossil fuel plants in most mm. countries. And, you know, we have got the added factor that, you know, trying to drill for oil in, in the North Sea, you know, and in uh, reclaimed land from arctic ice melting you know those are really hostile environments to try and get oil and gas from so you know they are going to be expensive to to drill for whereas if we're seeing wind and solar becoming cheaper then that's really a lot more viable uh, an option but he does conclude by saying increasing renewable capacity alone is not enough because it also needs to go alongside with the redu reduction of burning fossil fuels otherwise we're just keeping the problem going mm, yeah yeah certainly uh, yeah that's good I, I just hope that the the uk government isn't like sort of you know, giving subsidies to fossil fuel companies to go yeah. and drill in these yeah. difficult to drill places yeah. okay so i think we're done for today then so thank you very much for listening you can find a link to all of the materials we've referenced in our show notes. The next level of the ziggurat we'll be looking at is level five. If the positive impacts don't outweigh the negatives, technology should be able to solve problems as they arise. We, when it, Over the next few weeks, we're not sure what our pattern for episode releasing is going to be. Um, if you're not aware, Mark is doing a PhD at the moment and his PhD is, is coming to a head. Uh, only how much longer have you got left on it, Mark? So uh, end of March. About six more weeks to, to complete. Uh, how long? How many years have you been doing your no. PhD, Mark? <laughs> too too long. I, I don't care to admit. So a long like, time. that might uh, affect our release schedule because it, it takes a lot of planning and prep for the episodes. Uh, but we hope you'll uh, keep an eye and, and join us for them. We'll let you know when the episode's been released. If you want to know more about the Countering Climate Skepticism podcast, check out our website at ccspod.podbean.com. 
If you've enjoyed the episode and would like to support the show further, you can leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's known now. Um, Spotify, giving us five-star reviews really helps us as well. If you want to send us any feedback, suggestions for episodes, or if you've got questions or topics you want us to ask uh, or discuss on the show, then get in touch with us on social media. This is goodbye from me, John Rainier. Goodbye from me, Mark Rosser. A Native American proverb, we do not inherit the earth from our ancestors, we borrow it from our children. Goodbye.